and welcome to Alchemy the Podcast. On this episode, we'll be talking about our reactions to WWDC 2020. Jay, what's happening, man? Serge, how we doing, man? What's doing going on? Great, doing great. Excited to be talking Apple. You know how much I love it. I know, man. Same here. Biggest There's... Apple fanboy there is. <laughs> you, you actually probably are. Um, I I would hesitate to say there's people uh, out there who have probably spent more on Apple over the years as an individual consumer than you. Um, there's definitely people that have done it. I mean, there's definitely people that have done it. But... I mean, any any individual consumer that's pretty much bought a Pro XDR display or a new MacBook or Mac Pro tower has already outspent me for sure. That's true. <laughs> that, that's very true. That's very true. Although I know that you're going to be one of those people. Eventually, one day. Uh, in one the day. next, yeah, probably in the next 12 months, uh, you're going to just like get tired one day and buy it. So I'm just waiting for that. I'm, I'm just jealous of those people. I'm, I'm including that in the calculations right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, now, you know, working from home, it's, you might as well actually start investing in a station. You know, I've always been a laptop guy, but yeah. um, I, mean, I guess maybe it is time to finally switch to a desktop. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like spending a small car on your, uh, your, home, <laughs> your home workstation. Oh, yeah. It's just a smart car, <laughs> you know, but it's crazy. I mean, minimum a starting entry price for that is like $12,000 setup. Base, base computer and an XDR display is like a $7,000 or 7,000 bucks each. It's absurd. And I did like $300 wheels, um, for the, for the Mac pro. I mean, it's just, it's just absurd. It's just absurd. $800 wheels or something like that. Yeah. No, I don't even want to know the cost of a replacement. If an iPhone screen can cost $300 to replace, I don't want to know what a single component on, oh, the XDR. on those machines cost yeah, exactly right exactly um so what do you think new format it was uh, a little bit different this year not like last past ones i mean definitely a different format uh, we can thank COVID 19 for that obviously um i actually really enjoyed this year's format i thought it especially given that um the new headquarters just launched recently the fact that we got an opportunity to actually see around and we weren't just in the Steve Jobs Theater uh, was super cool. I think they did an incredible job with the videography and uh, the overall theme of the presentation. I love that like all of a sudden you're in the Apple Watch section and you're in the Apple Gym um, or you're in a different part of the, the headquarters, like one of those beautiful atriums. So uh, I, I personally really liked the format. I thought it was super engaging and I actually wouldn't mind seeing wwdc's in the future having a similar kind of format for the keynote well i think um for other develop or for other conferences and uh announcements that apple has i would agree with you that it's a great format but the developer conference is like a place for the developers to come on site and like really like to get that in-person contact um so i think that but for just like you know an iphone announcement mm. in that format i think would be really interesting i really loved it i thought i think they were pretty much showing off their uh all their new campus and everything yeah. that's so cool about it from the gym and everywhere you know that was a good point though Serge. like for an iphone announcement i actually think you know to your point that's probably better for maybe a live um a live showing off as well a live keynote but there's been a lot of like very hidden announcements over the last two years by Apple um, 
that have had very little fanfare besides a PR release goes out one day, all of a sudden all the tech journalists pick up on it. Um, I think the latest was the the MacBook Pro, really. Right? Yeah, yeah, the 16-inch MacBook Pro totally was really... Under the radar. Yeah, I mean, Phil Schiller did a couple interviews, but that was about it. I mean, it was a press release. And I mean, in computers in general, I feel like they've been starting to release just via press release. Exactly, which is crazy for Apple. But instead of doing it that way, I could totally see them doing a pre-recorded, awesome like video event like this and just push it out. It could be as simple as like pushing it out on YouTube and then through their channels. Um, and it can be a pop-up, just like these press releases are. Um, I think that would be a great format for those instead of these kind of weird hidden uh, releases where you don't actually hear from Apple very much themselves and it's coming from the CNETs of the world and, and other tech journalists where you're really finding out. Do you remember the old videos where Johnny Ive would always kind of talk through the new design of the new computer and call it aluminum yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they would yeah. be talking all about how they did the unibody construction and how it's the strongest yep. metals and all the processes of building it and everything. Like I'm surprised they didn't, they don't do those anymore really at all. And even for like the 16 inch MacBook Pro, like you would think with a press release, something, a video like that to go along with it even. Um, I'm surprised they didn't do anything like that. You know, I think that video format was really uh, indicative of Johnny Ives' personality. Um, and honestly, I don't think they do it anymore because he's not there. Right. And like, there's no one to be that luminary, that visionary at Apple who's really going to sit there and like, actually talk about the intrinsic value of a certain radial curve versus another uh, curve or the pixelations. I mean, I remember the iPhone or the uh, iOS 7 release um, when they completely redesigned and he kind of went to town on the entire iOS experience and how geometrical every single icon was. Um, you know, they had that entire underlying mathematical framework for how each icon was laid out. Um, and like, that's so Johnny Ive, like there's so much meaning and so much intention behind every interaction where, um, I just don't think that exists anymore. And it's been kind of tapering off for the last two years. Perfect example of that is this new Mac OS battery icon. Yeah. But you notice that, uh, Johnny Crazy. Ive's replacement was actually in that video for the Big Sur, um, redesign that talked about the whole redesign process. Alan, um, I don't remember his last name, but. Um, he's yeah. trying, I guess, maybe a little bit. There were big shoes to fill, and I think this man has little feet, unfortunately. <laughs> that, that may be so. That may be so. What was your favorite part of uh, WWC? Like, what was the biggest reaction or biggest unexpected thing that you kind of saw um, that really excited you? You know, so I don't want to be repetitive, but I actually think the format was one thing that I really was intrigued by this year. Um, I've watched WWDCs probably for the last decade uh, consistently. And so that new format was super engaging to me, and I actually enjoyed it. Uh, but two, I think, you know, you can't ignore the fact that this is a huge year and that we're finally off of Mac OS X. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that it's Mac, it up to 11. Mac OS 11, I'm super apprehensive uh, because I'm a little bit afraid that it's dumbing down the Mac experience a bit. Uh, and almost making the Mac too iPad-y. Um, that said, I'm super hopeful uh, for these new ARM chips and what that's going to do to the Mac and how it's going to interact with uh, Mac OS 11. And I'm sure there's no coincidence there. Mac OS 11 is being built to 
uh, directly work very closely with those ARM chips. And so at the same time, I think there's a ton of opportunity there. And in classic Apple fashion, it probably won't yield the most value in year one or two. But in year three, I'm just, I'm sure we're going to be blown away with the capabilities of these new machines, the new Mac OS. Yeah. And on that note too, I think what um, I was definitely taken aback by or really excited about too was the switch from iPad for iPad OS from the standard like tab bar on the bottom navigation to now the side panel column, um, like side drawer, right? Where now you have all of your items listed and it's a much more of a Mac experience. Um, and it's actually extremely similar to all of the Mac apps Mm -hmm. that are going to, that have that kind of sidebar. And so as you think about with catalyst, their program to kind of take iPad apps and run them on Mac native, um, I think it's really going to be unifying those experiences for developers Mm -hmm. to be able to develop iPad apps that work amazing on Macs. I mean, I think, that's so to be so vital, um, especially as we think about like the Apple ecosystem. We're already tied in through Apple's core services and their core apps. And uh, I've used Android before. We talked about this in our last episode. The Google Drive experience is not the same as the iCloud experience in how seamless all of the data moves between your different devices. Uh, and it really does tie into the overall Apple ecosystem. I think the closer and the more integrated these apps are going to be across the platforms, it's going to make this ecosystem feel so, so seamless uh, and so buttery smooth. And it already is so good. So just taking it to that next level uh, is really going to, think I think, kind of redefine the, the Apple ecosystem and the Apple ecosystem experience. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think they, oh, the other piece that um, is going to be now possible with the ARM-based Macs is kind of having native iPhone apps unchanged running on Mac computers full bore. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that'll be interesting. And I think that there's going to be some pretty cool use cases there too. Um, With little, like all you really need is this little like widget anyway. Um, And there could be some pretty cool apps. The one thing I'll say there is I hope it doesn't turn into the iPhone app on an iPad experience where it feels so awkward and so clumsy and it's so clearly a bad port. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually really shocked that they've let that go on for so long. Like I would have imagined, um, in the same sense of our last episode when we were talking about the 35%, um, revenue share and Apple's desire to not have unusable apps, Mm -hmm. apps that just have sign in screens on the app store. I'm shocked that they would let you be downloading iPhone iPhone apps apps on the iPad because the experience is so bad. Yeah, that would have been an interesting switch to make when they broke up iOS and iPadOS and broke iPad out as its own thing. If they had been like, okay, now with this switch to iPadOS, we now require only iPad optimized apps to be um, installable on these devices from now on. So something that really kind of blew me away was when they were talking about CarPlay. Um, And they mentioned these crazy statistics that CarPlay is now on 97% of new cars um, being built and released and sold in the U.S. And 80% of the ones being manufactured and sold worldwide. And I think that that just blew me away because coming, it's taken a while, but now it's pretty much ubiquitous, right? I mean, that's as close as we're going to get to pretty much ubiquity of you get into a car and you just plug in your phone and you're guaranteed to have this Apple experience that's fully running. And if we, I remember we were always talking about, you know, Apple cars back in the day, right? And just um, being able to control that technology. I think now that it is so ubiquitous, the things that they're going to start doing and going beyond um, in feature sets and 
um, I think it's going to be amazing. Oh, totally. And I mean, that's so crucial. And I think the ubiquity is really what's so important too. And it's, it's kind of like the U S with the iPhone. Um, like so many people have the iPhone. So just saying you're going to FaceTime them is a default, right? Yeah. No one's like, Oh, can I Google duo you? Like, no, it's can I FaceTime <laughs> you. Oh, I'll iMessage you. Oh, yeah. um, I'll airdrop you that whatever. There's a ubiquity, uh, which creates not only like the Apple ecosystem, but just like a community mm-hmm. because everyone's on the same, uh, playing ground. I was shocked. My uncle is super into uh, mobile homes and RVs, mm-hmm. uh, and he works for uh, an agency that will review them at times. Okay. So he was just at a dealer up in Massachusetts, and they gave him uh, a new model. I forget what the, the actual model is. I'm not really into RVs myself, uh, but they gave him a model to test. It's a brand new model year, 2020. The base of this thing is um, a Mercedes Sprinter. Okay. So up in the front, you're essentially in a Mercedes Sprinter with some other technology added. Interesting, the core of it is actually Android. So that Mm. head unit is Android, then customized by Mercedes, and then customized again by um, the actual mobile home uh, integrator, whoever builds the actual mobile home. Um, The experience is pretty good. It's interesting, it's built on Android, but there's CarPlay support. Mm. So you get in, he plugged in his iPhone and I helped him kind of work out CarPlay. It is amazing that you can be in a, whatever it is, 30 foot mobile home and sit in the front and pull up CarPlay. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, there's my uh, iHeartRadio app. There's my navigation. There's a, I was blown away. And I think that's so important. You can go from um, a smart car to, um, you know, in the future, I'm sure like scooters are going to be supporting things like CarPlay and Android Auto to a bus and have that exact same experience that you're used to. Yeah, I think there's already some motorcycles, um, you know, like the big motorcycles that have the speakers and the nav stuff. They already start having ones that support a CarPlay on those. So it's crazy. It's wild. Um, Now, what I would love to know is what market share looks like between Android Auto and CarPlay. Because I have heard of very few cars now that support CarPlay and don't support Android Auto. That said, back in 2018, uh, Google had about a three-point lead on Apple in terms of getting into new cars in 2018. So I'm I'm interested if that's kind of even now. I would imagine... Yeah, I think that they're just building everything to support both at this point. Um, So it doesn't matter if you have an Android or an iOS device, you just plug it in and you kind of take over that... Um, that screen, which I know is a very, very controversial thing, right? I mean, for these car companies to be like, we're going to give up access of our thing and let these other companies take over our infotainment yeah. systems was, I mean, think about how much money all these companies spent on their infotainment systems and still do. But the thing is, to me, that was always such a foolish thing for a car company to be focused on. Um, the infotainment really... You don't need to focus on that. Focus on a great, reliable, uh, mechanical underlying vehicle that drives really great because that's what it needs to do. It needs to get you from point A to point B safely. That's the entire reason you buy a car. Adding in the infotainment is like starting to get into almost like luxury goods, right? You can have a car with no infotainment system whatsoever and you can still get from point A to point B safely. Add in the infotainment. Okay, I want my radio. I want my navigation. I want convenience features. And that's what all these companies were competing on. They essentially said, oh, let's commoditize the driving experience and let's compete on these these BS 
luxury features. Um, and now all of a sudden you have companies fighting to innovate over what they can do with their infotainment system. And that to me should be the commoditized feature because you're not a tech company. You are great at building cars that drive well and get you from point A to point B safely. Focus on that. Let the apples of the world build the best infotainment experience um, so you can focus and reallocate the resources to make this car drive better. That's See, my opinion. The problem is, is that it's like the fragmentation of the market, right? Because if Apple is going to build an infotainment system, it needs to work on now 97% of cars, right? Versus you look at like a Tesla, right? And they're like, oh no, we're just going to design everything in-house, head to toe, and we're going to make it the best thing it can possibly be. And if you look at Tesla's technology, I mean, it's like leaps and bounds ahead of everybody. I think with limited resources, it's a zero-sum game. So you either have the best driving car with a shitty infotainment system, or you have a really great infotainment system and a kind of shitty car, and Tesla so far has proven they're still kind of making shitty cars with a really great technology wrapper around it. I would not say that. I mean, Tesla's are like, I think that they drive amazing. They're literally the fastest cars, right? They have no maintenance. It's like, they're fantastic cars. So you should disclaim that by saying you do not drive a Tesla full time. I do not. Um, you are a big fan of the company. I'm a big fan of the company. Uh, you have family members who own Teslas. Yeah. Um, I have friends and colleagues that have Teslas. I've read a lot of reviews about Teslas. The one thing about Tesla owners and Tesla enthusiasts is it's kind of like Apple. They can't do any wrong. You love the brand so much, they can't do any wrong, right? Apple introduced those crappy butterfly switches where like, but it's so thin and it's so convenient <laughs> and I don't mind going to the Apple store every couple of months to have my keyboard <laughs> fixed. The reality is you're willing to sacrifice that because right. there's such enthusiasm around the brand. Um, or the experience is so good that you're willing to take those little pieces and overlook exactly. them. But when you look at it practically, people have had real issues. Teslas have been leaking water. Teslas have notoriously bad um, window motors. They have horrible panel gaps. Uh, their doors are notoriously uh, get frozen up in colder climates, like up Canadian owners and people up in like Buffalo, New York, uh, have huge issues in the winter. The batteries drain at crazy rates if you live uh, in a cold environment. Um, especially because you're not getting the same insulation you get with an all-glass roof on a model like the X. So there's a lot of kind of production quality issues that I think also just come with an immature um, brand in a way. Like they're still very young, right? Ford's been making cars for over 100 years. Um, Tesla has been making cars for 15 years or thereabouts. So I think there's a lot of just things that they need to catch up on but back to the zero-sum game, I think they've really focused on doing brilliant things with technology, and that's awesome because they're going to move the rest of the market. Now is the time that they really need to focus on the quality of the vehicle itself. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of that is actually they're just due to like mass manufacturing, that the quality control systems are not up to par versus um, they actually are not investing enough in actually... Like, are they actually... By design, are these things are these problems, or are these problems that are coming out of like sloppiness in a push to just churn out as many cars as possible on these manufacturing lines? I don't think it's by design. I don't think anyone says I want to build the subpar product physically no, by but, design. Um, I think it's it's it, absolutely 
And it's also, Elon's not willing to do things the way other um, car companies have done things in the past. So he's also reinventing new ways of producing a vehicle, untested, innovative ways of producing a vehicle without using the traditional methods. Um, and so I think we're seeing him kind of figure it out while putting cars out into the public, into the market. And so I, of course they're going to get better. And I think probably in five, five to 10 years, they'll have like Mercedes class engineering, I hope. And they'll be producing them with that level of quality fit, finish and quality control. Um, but they're designing new ways of doing this. When you introduce new machines, when you introduce new processes, there's always going to be a margin on your yield. And unfortunately, it's not only just a margin on their yield, it's also a margin on the quality of the the yield they do take out. Um, and so that needs to get better, and it, it undoubtedly will. But they're also, like you said, they're rushing to get cars out the door. Yeah. They're yeah. selling more cars than Ford. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. it's And like just on that note, right, I mean, they're doing the rapid innovation, right? So unlike most cars that have model years, right? Tesla is just continuously upgrading and literally this Tesla that sh was shipped two weeks ago might have something different than the Tesla being shipped now. Um, and pretty much whenever you order, you are going to have the latest and greatest Tesla. Um, and it's literally better than the one that the person bought two weeks ago. You know? Yeah. And that's one thing that there's no excuse for any other car company um, to not be doing this today. It's an absolute joke. I mean, I, I drive a, a 2013 BMW. It would cost me... 300 to 500 dollars a year to get just my navigation system the maps themselves updated by bmw and it's a one-day appointment wow uh apparently just to update your firmware so not even like an os change on your your computer in your bmw <laughs> uh it's like a six-hour procedure and if anything goes wrong they have to like reset the entire computer and start over again so that could take up to two days just to get your firmware updated it's it's unbelievable and it's inexcusable, especially when these cars have so many sensors that are so sophisticated and are, are great for another 10 years. Why can't you be changing the software that's utilizing those sensors to do new and innovative things? Um, so couldn't I, agree more. Tesla's done such a good job. I think they've paved the way. I think what's unfortunate is they've been carving out market share for five plus years and other companies still aren't doing this. Yeah. Yeah. We got a little sidetracked there, but... Um Back to WWDC. This is the way we, this is the well, way the alchemists roll. Actually, just, real real quick, let's finish it on Tesla. But one question: ninety seven percent of cars, new cars, have CarPlay. I yeah. was thinking, who the hell are the three percent? Tesla. Is it just Tesla? You <laughs> think it's just? I think it might just be Tesla. I don't know. It might be. They're selling enough cars that it might just be Tesla. Yeah. At least in the U.S. Yeah. They. Yeah. Maybe. That could be the last three percent. I think it's the three percent. That's my prediction. We'll look it up later. I, I think that it, that's the answer. And then maybe there's like a handful of like supercars or something, like handmade supercars that aren't getting them or something. I wouldn't but be surprised like, if that's like so low. like, you know, pull up your car play. Like, you know, I would not be shocked. I think, I think maybe Ferrari's uh, Ferrari yeah. definitely does support it already. I think. Really? Yeah, Ferrari for sure. Um, uh, yeah. I don't Ferrari's know about doing it. Doing it. Um, but yeah, maybe there's some like just very you know but that's not three percent of the market is like handcrafted yeah it's like four cars a like, year yeah, they exactly. sell, yeah. I think it's, like, it's tesla it's tesla it's tesla <laughs> fucking tesla um so back to wwdc um i think we can't we would be remiss if we did not talk about widgets 
the new yeah. home screen experience on iOS and widgets. I have mixed emotions about um, this. The only, the, my biggest, uh, the thing that I'm the most upset about actually is that uh, widgets on iPad OS, right? So, you know, on iOS, they've yep. released this new, um, this ability to have like contextual widgets on your home screen, move apps around, um, and then this new app drawer. On iPad OS, they are only still keeping it to that, um, that today. Sidebar, yeah, yeah, the today sidebar that was already out in like last out uh, in the last OS. It's a total joke. Yeah, I don't get it. It's a total, total miss on their part, and it's not the first time this has happened. Um, ever since they pulled iOS and iPad OS apart, they've been introducing features for one that they haven't been immediately bringing to the other with parity. And I think that is creating a horrible disconnect between the two operating systems, especially because if you are use iPad OS, you obviously use iOS right. on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, so it's affecting 100% of your users. Um, and that's one thing that... Uh, it's clearly not an oversight. No, no, no. It was, it was by design. I, I can't see the rationalization. That That's the one kind of point of beef I have on that. Yeah, uh, how do you I feel hear. about that? I, yeah, I think that that was the that's the biggest downfall of widgets, in my opinion, is uh, is that it's only limited to the sidebar on iPad. I don't get it. iPad's the place to have widgets. And the other thing like too is huge, that, rich, data filled widgets. Yeah, could be all over the iPad. The twelve point nine inch iPad is like a computer. It has the real estate to do it. It's I mean, you could have full dashboards essentially. You could run a business off of straight widgets. Yeah. On a twelve point nine inch yeah. iPad. Yeah. That's that's totally totally Huge valid. missed opportunity. Um, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I think I think with the widgets on iPad too is you ha like and actually on the iPhone too when you uh, move them around it's actually being bound to specific areas that they've predetermined that you can put it. You can't actually have like one row of apps and then place it wherever you want widgets yeah widgets it's not it's there's still predetermined spots on the screen that you have to place it you're kidding swear to god i thought you could resize and recustomize and place them wherever you wanted to some degree interesting i mean we're gonna have to see actually ios um ios 14 public beta was released yesterday july 9th mm -hmm. uh thursday so yeah uh, you can go out and, and test it i haven't downloaded it to any of my um devices yet i'm probably gonna try and do so with an old device that i have um because it is super buggy still but i'm super interested to see how that actually works because that that could be a huge factor in a lot of people's adoption at least in mine i don't want to just have a widget where they want me to have a widget well it's so like it's it just you have to drop it by like two rows right so if you want to put a widget um you can't have like a row of apps and then widgets you'd have to have two rows of apps and then widgets. Or you'd have to have no rows of apps and that you would start with a widget right off the top. Which is so annoying because I also always wanted fixed point um, apps in general. Like I used to always want a super clean screen, right? So only have maybe one or two rows of apps, yeah. but pin them to the bottom instead of to the top so I can easily reach. Yep. The fact that, you know, it's, it's a fixed grid left to right, always top to bottom. It was so annoying to me. And I think that's also a, another missed opportunity here in iOS 14. How hard is it to create fixed point apps where you can say, nope, I want this app down here, over here, over here, 
one in the center that's maybe like an SOS app while you're running. Yep. So you know I'm just hit the center of the screen while I'm running to find my whatever app. Uh, disappointing. Disappointing. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And if you actually just think about usability, right, it doesn't make actually any sense to pin things to the top of the screen because like you said, if you look at what the most usable part of an iPhone is, it's the lower half, yeah. right? Where your hand and your thumb is easily reachable. Um, so to have everything pinned to the top left corner, which is the furthest thing from your, like if you're, if you're a righty and you're holding with your right thumb, mm -hmm. that's literally the furthest place from your right thumb, which is, doesn't really make any sense from usability standpoint. Totally, totally. And I think it'd be really interesting too, and, and they should be taking this into account, and I hope they are, how like when you look at the biggest screen phones they make, who's buying it? I bet you there's actually a lot of younger kids that are buying it. Mm -hmm. And then I bet you there's um, plenty of women who are buying them. Definitely. And there's plenty of men who are buying them that are like me that have just have small hands. <laughs> and so they should actually look at like, what is the average hand size of a large portion of our buyers? And where can they actually and design around their thumbs and their reach? Yeah. Because if it's, Great, it works for someone who's six foot six. That's great. That's whatever. Ten percent of the population. Um, it needs to work, you know, from your your entire gamut of customers. And I I downgraded to a, a smaller phone this last year because I could not deal with how large the phones got and how unusable they were. I was always using my phone like a mini iPad with two hands, and never one hand doing anything. Yeah. I totally. And that's why you notice how they had, do you remember that keyboard that broke apart? Yeah. 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 That was cool. Yeah. I never really used it that much. I, I never used it once. It reminded me of the original iPhone, that keyboard, like these little chick. Yeah. They yeah, yeah. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. chick. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. super small, yeah. uh, no room for air. Oh, yeah. I was like, uh, this is like a retro iPhone video game. Yeah. Not for me. For those of you who don't know, you could take the keyboard and kind of break it apart into two, like you would break it in half, right? So half the keyboard would be on the left side for your left thumb and half of it would be on the right side for your right thumb. And you could kind of grip your iPad and type um, pretty easily with just two thumbs. Um, so, I just to I guess continue on iPad really quickly scribble I think and like just the general like pencil updates to make it so much more useful I'm really really excited about um, you know I think the it was really powerful in the keynote they had this you know there's all of these natural benefits to type text that you kind of take for granted right the ability to just easily copy and paste it to make a little bit of space to write something additionally and this goal that they're on this like clear journey to make handwritten text just as useful and just as flexible um as type text i like i am thrilled i can't i can't tell you how excited i am for that i'm i'm so pumped i mean i started with an ipad pro uh in 2017 when they released the newest um mm -hmm. edition of the ipad pro and have been writing on that thing for the last three years and i literally do not go a single day without taking a full page of notes on my ipad um, most days, like my typical workflow, I'll probably have six, seven pages of written notes. Wow. Um, and I use Notability for that because you can also record at the same time. So, you know, with meetings, people who are okay with it, you record them right at the same time, have all of those notes. Um, so I'm writing constantly, but I love that you can now start writing directly into fields across the OS. Like if you're in Safari, mm -hmm. you can just write in a web address 
that is going to be so big to me because I just have the pencil in my hand. Yeah. And I just want to kind of keep, you know, working through the OS and then go to the next thing I'm doing, quickly write something in and go versus like, oh, yeah, put the pencil down really quick, write with my hand, yep. like type in, go back, etc. I think this is going to be a huge workflow improvement for anyone who's at least like me uh, and finds themselves using the Apple Pencil almost all day long. Yeah, for whatever reason, the one that I'm really excited about is writing reminders, right? Because it feels like you're writing on a post-it note yeah. again, right? Where you're writing this like actual physical to-do list once again, and it's really nice. Yep. Um, I think it'd be a great experience. Totally. Um, now the big question is, when does Apple Pencil go beyond iPad? When are they going to create Apple Pencil support for iPhone? If ever. Uh, that's a that's a tough one. And I feel like that's one that that's a bridge I don't think they're going to cross anytime soon. I actually think we're far more likely to see that happen with Mac. And part of the reason interesting. I, part of the reason I say that is a lot of tech reviewers are saying one thing in their early impressions using Mac OS 11 is that it feels odd using a cursor. They're like this experience does not feel cursory. Um so they're thinking that this was actually optimized more for touch interesting than it was for cursor support. Um and now that we're getting our Macs, there's maybe a future definitely of a hybrid Mac or a touchscreen Mac. So I don't know. Yeah, if you look at like the control center, I mean, that literally looks exactly like an iPad control center, which is a built for a touch the interface. The toggles, you know? the sizing of things, yeah. it's all being optimized for fingers. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think there might be something there. You heard it here first. Touchscreen Max, they're, they're in the pipe. I don't know if we can claim <laughs> first on that one since I literally just ripped that off from a, <laughs> a bunch of other people. But, um, no, I mean, I, I definitely think there's, there's maybe a future there and it, it would feel pretty natural. Um, I've used a few windows laptops that have had touchscreens. I think that the experience is pretty abysmal, but that's because even if they didn't have a touchscreen, the experience would be pretty <laughs> abysmal. Uh, it's just bad hardware. I've, I haven't, I've yet to find a Windows um, laptop that I really like made by any manufacturer. Um, but it's really convenient, and I would find myself often like on a web page that I'm just have the laptop on my lap, scrolling through the page that way. Um, and there's other things like if you're in Notes and you want to just kind of scroll. I think scrolling is a very natural thing to do with your hand now. Um, and there's a lot of yeah. things like I'm looking at my laptop as we speak right now and I'm like, oh, I could touch that right now. And definitely that would feel totally natural to me versus going down to my trackpad. So I think we're at a point where there's enough touch experience and the OSs are getting close enough together, uh, especially with OS 11, that we could possibly be seeing that. If we were sitting here talking about this a year ago, I would say there's no way in hell that we're going to see a touchscreen Mac anytime soon. Yeah, I think I would. I think the like a pinch to zoom action on a Mac would be really nice. You know, yeah, when you're amazing. looking at photos or on a web page, just being able to touch that screen. And I mean, if you think about just a baby, right? I feel like they're naturally growing up with these touch screens, mm -hmm. and they're going to be touching their Mac screens, like just being like, "Wait, I, why can't I just pinch to yeah. zoom? This makes no sense to me. Yeah. This is just foreign." Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many times uh, my mom's not a Mac user. She's never been a Mac user, always been a Windows user. Um, and she's uh, 60 plus years old. So, you know, uh, on the older kind of side of generations in terms of technology usage, um, she's constantly poking at, at my screen. MacBook screen. And it's like, oh, it's not a touch screen. 
And I'm like, I can't believe that your natural reaction with a computer, with a right. laptop, is to go straight for the screen. Wow. And start poking around like to, that's how you navigate, right? Um, and so I think it's really interesting. You're right, you're totally right. Like the younger generations are mm -hmm. growing up with touchscreens. They're getting phones at like five years old. Yeah. Um, and uh, babies are using their parents' phones. So that's very natural to them. But even on the older side of things, it's very natural to them too. They're like, this is a simpler experience. Yeah. I got into technology really with maybe an iPhone. Um, otherwise, I was just using TurboTax and Excel at work. Um so it's it's interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah, I remember seeing like a, one of my relatives, um, literally a two-year-old kid, knows how to open up the iPhone and navigate to the game that he wants to play and like plays it perfectly. And I'm like, you're two years old. What? Oh, dude, they know everything. They know how to like break through parental controls, how to get through time <laughs> limits. Um, I forget what my boss is telling me. I'll have to I'll have to look it up or ask her again. Um, but she was saying like she set YouTube limits for her daughters because they're obsessed with YouTube and they found like a loophole on how they can like get back oh into gosh. YouTube and it's like I don't know it's something like they turn off the phone and turn it back on again and do something um, how old are they uh, the older daughter's like five wow and the younger is like three and they're beating parental controls set up by like Highly paid Silicon Valley engineers. Anything to get to the tube, bro. <laughs> Anything to get to the tube. Um, any other big takeaways that you want to discuss um, that were really, like, stood out to you from WWDC? Yeah. Siri's still not getting good enough fast enough. Yeah. That's very true. Um, every year I'm waiting for, like, a huge Siri overhaul. And every year we get... You know, obviously they're going to talk about Siri, but Siri's not getting any better. She's getting incrementally tiny bit baby steps mm -hmm. better every year. We need a massive leap. So it's got to be iOS 15. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> it has to be. I'm done waiting. Like, let's go. That, we said that last year with iOS 14. But, um, but yeah, I think what they really need is like something that's like a true like AI can really break down sentences better than anything that we've seen before. Right now, they're just programming it with more answers, right? They're just like filling its brain with more like encyclopedia content so that it can answer more things. But it's not fundamentally getting better at like truly understanding everything you do and creating like super complex um, commands, right? And like having the ones that like rapidly repeat each other right where it gives you an answer and then you continue to have this natural conversation where it takes all of the context of the previous like questions and builds all of that together to continue to get something better for you and it makes me beg the question is there a fundamental misunderstanding by apple on how users actually want siri to behave because i think that interview craig federighi did with um mkbhd on MKBHD's YouTube channel was very telling about the way they think about Siri. Uh, for context, MKBHD asked a question to Greg Federighi, who is uh, I, uh, um, Apple's VP of what, Serge? Hardware and VP software. Hardware. He essentially runs the show under Tim Cook yeah. um, over at Apple, especially all things kind of iOS uh, related. Or at least software. I think he runs all hardware and software. Like he sits on top of it, but he's definitely yep. more on the software side. Yeah, um, he's been a, been at Apple for a very long time now. Um, 
MKBHD asked Craig Federighi why Siri on the iPad took over the entire screen. So Siri this year, instead of taking over your entire screen, uh, the icon will just kind of float in the bottom right of your screen when you call her up. Uh, so you still get to see what's going on with the rest of your screen, etc. The thing is, you can't interact with the screen that you see while Siri is actually either listening or playing back something to you. And that's really frustrating because you're like, okay, Siri's just floating in the corner. I can see the screen. I want to interact with the screen while I'm using Siri, but you can't do that. So Craig's answer to MKBHD was, well, we actually tried that and we thought it was a bad experience for our users because they just want to have Siri give them an answer and Siri get back out of the way. And now fundamentally, that means they think that users are asking things like, um, oh, there goes my Siri. Uh, Searching for back out of the way on the iTunes store. Um, (laughs) They think people are asking Siri things like, what's the weather? Um, Is it going to rain tomorrow? Who's playing in the sports game tonight? Like we are so beyond those types of queries. And as we were alluding to, it's now like, um, hey, call my dentist for me. Um, or move my appointment tomorrow from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Like we're getting to the level of not only being able to execute on complex commands, but also be able to understand context, layer that with AI uh, driven by machine learning, and actually perform services for you essentially. Right. And I think that's what we're seeing with uh, Google Duplex, which was introduced at Google I.O. two years ago. Um, I've yet to actually hear about the kind of rollout in practically, but um, that is such a meaningful step forward for AI and for assistance. Um, and I'm really hoping we're going to see something like that come from Siri in the next year. Yeah. I mean, I, I watched that YouTube uh, interview and I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I kind of do see it though, right? It's like when we don't really get, we don't know when to dismiss Siri, right? If it's not immediately. Um, and then it becomes an action for you to take that you have to dismiss it, um, which is an extra click. But the reason we want Siri to go away right away is because she gave us such a basic answer that we're ready to move on. Right. If she was giving us more complex answers, there would be more engagement, more interaction. Like if yeah, I, could, I could see that. If I could say to Siri, open up MacRumors.com, scroll down. Select the article, select the article, and then the article name. Yeah, you could do that through the like like the uh, accessibility feature, right? For like people that don't have the ability to actually interface with the screen, but like the voiceover things. But it's not. Um, or open up reminders, create a new list, call it groceries, add eggs, milk, and broccoli. Share that list with search. I mean, they they clearly have the technology, right? They're doing it for, as an accessibility feature. They just need to combine that in intelligently into Siri to be able to execute those commands like on demand and not as an always on, like the only way you're going to interact with this device. Yeah. I mean, it's it's getting there. I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that you can do um, multiple commands through Siri to like things like the Philips Hue uh, through Apple Home. So like I yep. regularly am doing that. I'm like layering in three different rooms worth of lights uh, either to turn them on or off or to adjust the brightness in it. Mm-hmm. It handles that pretty pretty yep. seamlessly. So um, we're definitely seeing, again, it's like baby steps though. Yeah. We're seeing tiny incremental movements forward. We're not seeing big leaps. And um, I think 
pretty much everyone's ready to see that, especially when on the other side of the, the fence, um, obviously I'm not a huge fan of Android in general, but I cannot deny how powerful Google Assistant has gotten over the last two to three years. Yeah, and I think that the, I think that maybe what is, I don't know this obviously, but I think maybe what is kind of the reason that Siri's lagging so far behind is because of all of the on-device um, processing and mm. the lack of data collection, right? The focus yeah. on privacy. Whereas Google really is just taking every single one of those recordings and their AI engine is getting better and better and better every single time. So, yeah. 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 I mean, there's so much that we could talk about um, on this episode and um, I'm sure that we'll have a lot more reactions to come as kind of the betas um, get better and better. And as we start to be able to test them and then obviously as it rolls out in the fall. Um, on the next episode, though, we're actually going to be talking about we're going to be starting a new little mini series about actually how to start a podcast. And we'll be talking all about our experience and all the things that we've kind of learned um, just in the first kind of week or two here um, of podcasting and trying to just uh, bring you guys all along on the journey uh, that we're going through, too. It's been an exciting journey thus far. So definitely tune in and join us for that one. Cheers. Cheers.